So we are in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read today verses 47 through 53. Now today's sermon is going to be a little different. You're actually going to get kind of two shorter sermons today. Uh, the passage that we're covering, um, we're going to handle in kind of a condensed format. And then a few weeks ago, we were talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper, which also occurs in Luke chapter 22. And I promised that I would come back to one detail that we didn't have enough time to cover in that message. And so today, in light of the Lord's Supper that we're going to be taking together, we're going to have an extended explanation of the elements as we talk about how these elements represent the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. So one side of your note sheets talks about the first message we're learning in Luke 22, verse 47 to 53. And the second side of your note sheet will talk about the things we're going to discuss concerning the new covenant. So starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would unfold, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and with clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Friends, we've been meditating on the last free moments of the life of Jesus here on earth. He has worked to prepare his church by giving them the Lord's Supper as a means of grace that's going to strengthen them and keep their focus on the deeds that he's about to do in the hours to come as he gives his life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for us. He's also urged his disciples to be in prayer so they might prepare their hearts for the temptations and the hardships that are shortly going to come upon them with his departure. And now finally, the hour has come and the power of darkness, as Jesus calls it, is about to play their part in the destiny that God has laid out for his son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus and the 11 faithful disciples are, are talking in the Garden of Gethsemane, a crowd approaches them. And not everyone in that crowd is a stranger. Judas, formerly one of the 12, walks forward from that group. That group consisted of temple soldiers, those who were commissioned to enforce the Jewish law. It consisted of some Roman soldiers who were there to enforce the, the, the law of Caesar. And there were also some Jewish officials there, some high priests and their assistants. And Judas walks forward from them as they interrupt the group of disciples in the still of the night as they were trying to pray together. He approaches Jesus to greet him, but the Savior immediately knows what Judas is really trying to do. And in verse 48 again, it says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He's calling attention to the treachery that Judas has in his heart. See, a friendly kiss was not an uncommon greeting in the culture of Palestine. Even to this day, it's kind of like a friendly handshake between familiar parties. It would have been a, a gesture of welcome, of familiarity, and of trust. That is very ironic, considering what Judas was about to do. His actions display contempt veiled as love. They, they display ill will disguised as friendship. This kiss was a very practical device for Judas. Though so many of the people had heard of Jesus, and many of them had heard him preach, don't forget that wherever Jesus went and preached, 
Throngs of people were gathering to him, sometimes in the hundreds, sometimes in the thousands of people. And so if you came to hear Jesus and you heard him preach, you might not be able to get close enough to get a really good look at his face. So there were some that were familiar with what Jesus had been preaching and what he had said, but still could not pick him out in a crowd and recognize him by sight. Also remember that these disciples are gathered together in the dead of night. I mean, it is very dark in the garden. They're not in the, in the city where the lights of torches and of, of uh, the street lamps could be seen. Instead, they're in the middle of the wilderness in the, on the Mount of Olives, and it's very, very dark out there. And so Judas told his fellow conspirators that the one that I kiss with a welcome greeting, he is the Christ, so that they didn't accidentally, in their confusion and in the darkness, arrest the wrong man. Now, if the unusual late-night crowd that gathered and drew near to those disciples did not stir their hearts and alarm them, then the rabbi's mention of betrayal most certainly did. Their hearts had to be thumping as the tension began to escalate Wondering what was about to unfold, I doubt any trace of the sleepiness that had plagued them before remained as one of the disciples utters a question that is found only here in Luke. The other Gospels don't record this. One says, probably in a shaky and nervous voice, shall we strike with the sword? They didn't know what to do. They weren't sure if, if they should defend their rabbi. They wanted Jesus' instruction. Remember that in the verses that immediately precede these verses last week, Jesus was urging his men to prepare themselves for the very difficult conditions that they would face after he departed this earth. They couldn't expect to go forward now unprepared and just hope that the people of Israel were going to take care of their needs. After Jesus gives his life on the cross and is put to death as a rebel and as a conspirator against Caesar, as he would be accused of being, many of the Israelites would turn their back on his disciples. Suddenly they would become enemies of the Jewish people. And so they needed to prepare themselves. And Jesus says, I, I want you to get a knapsack. I want you to gather money bags and a sword. I want you to be prepared. And you might recall from last week's message, the disciples got caught up in this idea of swords and they missed the point of what Jesus was trying to say. When they said, we have two swords, is that enough? Jesus says, enough about swords. And remember, there was, a, there was a kind of ambiguous Greek phrase there that many people misinterpret. When he said, it is enough, he was telling them, stop talking about the swords. The battle we're preparing for is a spiritual battle. It's not so much about defending your physical safety. It's about repairing your heart for the temptations that will come your way. And so they were missing the point last week. They're apparently still missing the point. In the escalating chaos of the night, one of them decides not to wait for Jesus to respond to this question, he draws his sword out and strikes the nearest part of this party, cutting off the man's ear. Now, earlier, Jesus had urged his men to pray. Do you remember why he told them to pray? So they might be ready. So they might be prepared. So that when temptation came their way, they could do the godly thing. And here, the 11, we see, had not prayed in the garden. They had fallen asleep. They had not prayed in preparation, and so they were not ready to react in a godly way in the face of this opposition. Now let me share a few details of what's going on here. First of all, are we surprised to learn from John's Gospel, which also records this event but gives us some varying details that Luke leaves out, are we surprised to learn that Peter is the one who swung the sword? Peter, God bless his heart, is passionate about following the Lord, but he doesn't always think about what he's doing or the implications of it before he strikes out in action. Um, it is possible that several different things could have contributed to this rash movement on behalf of Peter. 
Don't forget that just a few hours before, Jesus, Peter's close, dear friend, had looked him in the eye and had prophesied that before the night was done, he would deny Jesus three times. That was weighing heavily on his mind and on his heart. And so I can imagine a scenario where this group of soldiers came and Peter's running it through his head, saying to himself, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to turn away from my Savior. And when things began to escalate, to prove his dedication to the, to the Savior, he pulls out his sword and tries to defend him with violence. The man who Peter attacked was named Malchus. John shares that detail with us as well. We know who Malchus was historically. He was the servant, kind of the right-hand man, of the high priest, the most powerful person in Israel that was Jewish. It is possible that Peter was growing more and more frustrated with this opposition to his rabbi Jesus. And they might have heard word or had discussed among themselves that perhaps this betrayal was going to be coming from the hand of those who should have received Jesus the most, from these high priests, these chief priests of the land. And so seeing Malchus there and knowing that betrayal was near, it could have enraged Peter to the point where he could not bear to hold back any longer and he drew out his sword and attacked that man. Or perhaps his great love for Jesus simply made it difficult for him to stay still and not do anything in that moment. He could not come to terms with the fact that Jesus was going to willingly lay down his life. Don't forget, Jesus had said, this is something I must do. And Peter said, far be it from me, Lord, you must not die. And Jesus had actually said, get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me that way. I need to die for the sins of many. And so Peter has struggled to, to receive and, and come to terms with this truth that Jesus needed to die for the sins of those he loved. Perhaps his frustration, his anger at losing somebody so dear to him was more than he could handle and he struck out because he was out of control and not ready for the moment. Now last week, if you've paid attention to the news, you might have read the story of the disgraced former U.S. gymnast physician. His name is Larry Nassen. He was sentenced recently to life in prison after being found guilty of sexually assaulting over 250 minors that were under his care as the physician in charge of the U.S. Olympic team and several other gymnastic teams. His crimes were especially heinous because they had been committed against these young athletes under the disguise of physical therapy. He told them that what he was doing was simply a procedure that would help them out. He was lying and telling them he was doing them good while he was doing incredible mental and emotional grief to these girls. <coughs> On the Friday of the trial, Randall uh, Margraves, who is the father of three of the victims of Nasser, was allowed to give a statement to this defendant who had just been sentenced. As Nasser's, uh, as this man who three of his children had been assaulted by Nasser stood before the judge, he looked at this man and with disgust he asked the judge if he could have three minutes alone with him. And the judge said, I cannot grant that to you. And he said, then I'll take one. And he leapt across the courtroom to try to grab Nasser and do whatever damage he could. The bailiffs immediately seized him and brought him to the ground and subdued him and took him out of the courtroom. Now, I'm sure you can understand why this man reacted the way that he did. The incredible helplessness he must feel knowing that his three precious daughters were violated by this man must have caused incredible anger, overwhelming disgust and, and righteous indignation against this man who sat on trial and had done so 
many wrong to so many innocent women. At the same time, what he did was not right. And even he admitted later that he had acted wrongly by lashing out at this man. He apologized to the judge who has declared she will press no charges against this father considering the circumstances and the emotional trauma that his family and many others had experienced at the hands of this man who put them through such abuse. Now it's possible that as Peter saw this dishonest band of characters putting their destructive plot into motion, he simply could not control himself any longer and he lashed out in anger at whoever was standing closest by at him, hoping to defend his master and begin a defense that might turn the tide and allow Jesus to escape. But apparently fishermen are not very good fighters. As he had a free, clear shot on one of his opponents, all he managed to do was cut off an ear and wound a man merely on the surface. Please don't miss uh, an important point that I want to make this morning. As Jesus draws closer and closer to the cross, nothing, nothing is going to stand in the way of him fulfilling the Father's will. Satan could not stand in his way, though he tempted Jesus in the garden. Remember we spoke last week about how Satan tried to tempt Jesus with goodness and holiness since he knew he could not tempt him with evil. He said, why would you take on the sins of the world? You are holy and pure. This is not you. Take this cup away from your lips. You want to stay pure. You want to stay holy. And he, he tempted Jesus and yet Jesus, through the agony of that temptation, Sweat and blood mingled down, dripping off of his brow, was strong enough to stand. He pushed away the, the temptations of the enemy. So Satan could not stop what Jesus was planning to do. Peter, though his motivation was love, could not stop what Jesus was planning to do. Jesus knew that he came to this earth for the express reason of giving his life on the cross for the sins of his elect. And though Jesus will be put to death for the sins of so many people, Pilate and the high priests can't even really kill Jesus because on the third day, his tomb is found to be empty. There is no body there because Jesus has risen from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over sin. He is unstoppable. All things work together according to the plan that God had been putting into motion for thousands of years a plan to bruise the head of the serpent, that wicked one Satan who had introduced sin into the perfect garden of Eden, a plan to bruise the head of that serpent. But it could only happen when the heel of the seed of Mary, Jesus, was bruised in the process. He would experience pain himself in order to smite down his enemy, Satan. And there is no force in the universe that can keep that from happening. Every promise God makes is kept in full. In any regard, the wrath of man here, the wrath of Peter, does not produce the righteousness of God, as James 1, 19 and 20 tells us. Peter acted, but he acted without waiting for an answer. One of his brothers had said, Jesus, shall we strike out? And rather than wait for direction from his king, from his rabbi, he acted on his heart. Let us learn from this pattern, friends. How many times have we gone to our knees and prayed, asking the Lord, what should I do, God? What step can I take? Which direction do I go? And then we got up from our knees and immediately did what our heart told us to do instead of giving God time to respond to us. Instead of seeking the scriptures to see if there was some wisdom there for us to guide our paths and keep us from destruction. 
all of us have ignored the instruction of God, even though sometimes we ask for him to provide. At times, God desires us to act on faith. He does, at times, want us to know the word well enough to just be able to make a decision in the heat of the moment. But there is danger of striking out on our own from, from the leading of the Lord, apart from his clear wisdom, especially if we do so in opposition to the scripture of God. If Peter takes half a second to think it through, he, he had he taken the time to really be serious about wanting to know what God wanted him to do, what Jesus wanted him to do in that moment, perhaps he could have avoided the embarrassment of doing what Jesus had no intention of him doing. So too, friends, should we be willing to wait. Some of you have been praying for a long time for the Lord God to answer, and it is, it is tempting to just do what you want to do instead of letting the Lord lead you and guide you. But if the Lord has not answered, it's not because he's not listening, and it's not because he doesn't care. His timing is perfect, even if sometimes his timing takes longer than we would hope. Jesus immediately commands Peter and the others to stop and to strike out no more, but he goes beyond just telling them to halt their violence. Luke's gospel is the only one that includes this little detail, records that Jesus healed the very people who he was there to apprehend, or that rather were there to apprehend him. This one who came with wickedness in his heart that wanted to take Jesus captive is struck by one of his disciples, and rather than condemn the man, rather than criticize him, he reaches down and picks up his severed ear, places it on the man's head, and in a moment, it is healed as good as new. And there are several reasons why this tiny little detail that only Luke gives us is very important. The healing is significant because it displays Jesus' willingness to love even those who would do him harm. This man was not a friend to him. This man had every bad intention, and yet Jesus still heals the man. He has every reason to condemn him, but rather than strike him down, he binds him up. And it is a clear foreshadowing of the prayer that Jesus will pray as he hangs on the cross, bloody and beaten, and he looks up to the heavens with what little strength he has left and prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We can hardly relate to that kind of forgiving love, can we? But it is the very love that is willing to set us free from our sin. Despite our guilt, despite the, the wickedness that we are willing to partake in, despite our open rebellion against our maker, God redeems us. He gives us a love we cannot earn, a love we do not deserve. This healing is also significant because it undoes the unlawful thing that Peter did. In a sense, it exonerates Peter and makes it possible for Peter and the other 11 disciples or the other 10 disciples to not be captured and put under trial as Jesus was about to be put under trial. This is important. John's gospel records this prophetic declaration in the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples, which is recorded in, in chapter 17 of John. Let me take you back there for a moment. Chapter 17, verse 12 of John says this, and this is Jesus praying over his people. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. He's talking about his disciples here. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Who's he talking about there? Judas, who was in, you know, that was God's plan all along. Not one of them has been lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Now what he's declaring there in that prayer is that his disciples, other than Judas, who left on his own, of his own free will, his disciples will not be apprehended and put to death with him. It will only be him. John's gospel also adds some dialogue that likely links that promise to the guard's mercy toward Peter and the others. I mean, have you ever thought and wondered to yourself, how does Peter strike a guard, cut his ear off, and then walk away? And Jesus gets arrested, but he's free to go. How does that happen? Well, look at John 18, 8 through 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. You know, this is, just to give you a little background, he's in the garden. John 18 is kind of a parallel passage to what we're studying today in Luke 22. Jesus is in the garden. They have come forward. Judas has identified him as Jesus, and they're asking for clarity. Which one of you is Jesus? Are you Jesus? And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So it's very, very critical to see that this healing, the fact that this man was not even damaged anymore, meant that they had nothing to hold against Peter. They could not try him for assault because where's the evidence of an assault? Jesus has made him whole again. I think that's critical to the fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus gave that not one of his men would be lost. And so, yes, Jesus is arrested. He allows himself to be taken into custody, but the other 11 disciples are allowed to go. Because he's God in the flesh, every declaration of Jesus becomes a promise of oath. The healing of Malchus was necessary to take the pressure off of the other disciples to ensure that they would not be personally subjugated to the same kind of mockery of justice that Jesus was about to endure. Now this healing, Jesus picking up this man's ear and, and placing it back perfectly on his head and le letting him walk away free of pain and free of deformity, this healing is significant also because it demonstrates Jesus' deity to those who would soon misrepresent him as a sinful rebel. They could not deny that God's power was in him once he, right in front of all of them, healed one of their own. Jesus shows these men just who they're dealing with, doesn't he? He heals one of their party right before their very eyes, and yet how do they respond to that? With their hardness of heart, they should have seen in that moment, this is not a, this is not a rebel, this is not some liar, look what he just did. He just used the power of God to heal a man. How can we be taking this man into custody? But they were set in their way. They had a plan and they were going to carry it out. They weren't looking for the truth. They were looking to fulfill their own will. And Jesus exposed that in them by showing them his deity, his power in healing right before their eyes and then watching as they still took him into custody and went to take him to trial, claiming that he was nothing but a liar and a counterfeit when indeed he was the son of God. One of the beautiful aspects of, of this scripture, my friends, is that it can give us hope. It can give hope to imperfect people like us. Jesus' love for Peter shows us the Lord can undo what we mess up. Peter made a mistake. He acted out of turn. He did the wrong thing. He did not show the love and patience that he should have. He did not show the faith that God was going to take care of this situation. He tried to take matters into his own hands, but that didn't mean that Jesus stopped loving him. Jesus was able to not only continue loving Peter, but undo the damage that he had done with his sword. Friend, if you're here today and perhaps you've made some financial mistakes, perhaps debt is a, is a heavy burden on your shoulders and you don't know how you're going to undo this mess that you have made, 
the Lord can overcome it. Maybe you're here today and you're concerned about your marriage because you have done terrible damage to your spouse. You have offended her or him. You have committed sin against your family and things are falling apart and you don't know what you're going to do to make it right again. Jesus can repair that relationship. He is a God of redemption. Have you committed sin and essentially ruined your testimony? Is your witness for Christ in shambles right now because you have shown yourself not able to fulfill the law of God yourself? You might think I'll never be able to tell people about Jesus now because they've seen the wicked things that I have done. Jesus can rebuild your testimony. He can make a new story for you. On the same day that Randall Margraves attempted to assault Dr. Nasser, a young woman named Rachel Den Hollander had 40 minutes to address the courts and her abuser during the sentencing. She was one of the victims that Nasser had assaulted as a child. You probably won't read about what she said to him in the news because rather than lashing out at the man, rather than insisting he be, he be damned and that he deserved to burn, she took that time to eloquently preach to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to read a small portion of what Rachel said in that hearing on Friday afternoon. She said, You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought a Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay the penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. There is no sin that we can commit, no error that we can fall into that Jesus cannot, by his own power, make right once again. Even a man as vile as Larry Nasser has hope of salvation if he will repent before the Lord God and trust in Jesus Christ to be his Savior. Those sins, too, can be put to death on the cross. Even a man as guilty as he can be redeemed by the power of Jesus' blood. After hearing Malchus and calming his disciples, Jesus puts his captors on the spot. He looks at that crowd who should have been amazed at his miracle and instead are still determined to take hold of him. He looks at that crowd and asks them essentially, why the weapons? Why have you come to me with clubs and torches ready to do harm if necessary? Are we robbers? Are we murderers? Are we that intimidating to you? On the contrary, we preach every single day in the temple courtyards. We're down there telling everybody what we have to say. 
We're doing it in the broad daylight, and yet you come up here on the mountain in the darkness of night, and you take me here. What Jesus is doing is he's making extremely clear to all who are there that night that these men are scoundrels and that they are there for the wrong reasons. His innocence is true, but they don't care about that. They have a plan, and they're going to walk it out. Jesus exposes their treachery, though ultimately their dark hearts are only helping the Lord's will be done. He knows that by going through with their wickedness, God's ultimate plan will be completed. Their hour of darkness will not jeopardize his victory. The light will prevail. At this point, I'd like you to flip over your note sheet. We're going to start Sermon 2.0 now. A few weeks back, we looked at a passage of Scripture still in chapter 22, which has so many rich things for us to learn and examine. And we're going to look at a passage that we didn't quite have time to develop at that moment. There was a lot to preach that morning, and I wanted to do it on a day when we were taking the communion as well so that it could have special impact on the taking of the elements. So let's rewind. We are no longer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are back in the upper room again. The Lord has gathered his men for that traditional Passover meal. The meal, however, has, about, er, has taken a shift. Jesus has redefined it. Now it is not just going to point back to Egypt and the Hebrews' exoneration from slavery, but now forever, as the church takes of the bread and of the juice, it will point back to the work that Jesus Christ is about to do on the cross, hours from them taking this first Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are looking back on that moment when Jesus loved us so much that he gave his very life for us. And so today... This juice that we're going to distribute to you is representative of that wine that they drank that night. It's representative of the blood that Jesus Christ spilled for us. The book of Hebrews takes great pains to show how the new covenant is so good and so strong. It reminds us that apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Because sin is an assault against the giver of life, the debt of that sin is that life be taken away. Blood needs to be shed. But we also learn from the book of Hebrews that in no way can the blood of a bull or of a ram compensate for the, blood of the life of a man. Though the Israelites had given sacrifices and those sacrifices had played their part, they had taught them to look forward to the redemption that God was going to provide for them in Jesus Christ, those rams were not actually cleaning their sins away. They were teaching them the severity of their sin. Because a bull is not the same as a man. It's not made in God's image. A man needed to give his life. And that life must be spotless and pure as only Jesus Christ's life was. We're also going to distribute bread as they did on that first night in just a few moments. And this bread is unleavened because it wants to represent the life, the body of Jesus Christ, which is broken for us on the cross. Jesus sacrificed the moment he left the purity and perfection of heaven and came down to dwell in this sinful place with us. He took on a human body and he lived day in and day out focused on the Father and committed to doing the Lord's will. He didn't do what we do. He did not rebel against God, fail in temptation. He did not commit iniquity. Instead, he walked faithfully every moment of his life. And that bread was then pinned to a cross so that Jesus could demonstrate to us true love. And in describing how these elements are, are to be a regular reminder of the great price that he is about to pay to ensure their atonement, 
Jesus adds this one little detail that we don't want to overlook, and we didn't have time for it last, last time we looked at this passage. So Luke 22, verse 20 says this, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate a new covenant. A covenant that we drink to, when you drink of a cup, that's a seal that you are a part of a covenant. We drink to this covenant as a seal of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saying amen to the new covenant that he has called us into by grace. Everyone who loves the Lord Christ, who has confessed their sin to him and received him as Lord and Savior, has entered into this beautiful new covenant with him. Now, some have taught, I think in error, some have argued that the new covenant that's mentioned in Scripture is a covenant that God is making only with ethnic Israel and that it is not for Gentile believers. But if that were the case, there would be no reason for us, the Gentile church, to take of the bread or of the juice because that wouldn't be our covenant. On the contrary, he says that this is something the church is supposed to be partaking of, Gentile and Jew, until he returns to receive his church. The new covenant is not an agreement that will be fulfilled only with ethnic Israel and only in, in some future event. It is the covenant in which the New Testament church is now living. We see evidence of this from the Apostle Paul himself as he addresses the church in Corinth. If you know about the church of Corinth, you know that it was not a group of Hebrew believers. It was a mixed church of all different kinds of people, a predominantly Gentile church. And this is what he says to them in 2 Corinthians 3. Verses 3 and then on into 6. And you show that you are a letter. He's talking to the congregation and describing them as a letter, as a testimony of the work that Jesus had done through the apostles in Corinth. He says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, remember this part, but on tablets of the human heart. We're going to come back to that in a moment. He goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's not pointing forward to some distant future. He's talking about the covenant that the church lives in now, isn't he? Just as Israel lived under the terms of a covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai, so does the New Testament church live under the terms of a new covenant that Jesus enacted on the evening of his crucifixion. And so we might ask ourselves, why did we need a new covenant? Why did, why did Jesus give us this new covenant if there was already a covenant existing? If the covenant of, of Moses, the covenant of the law was in force, then why does Jesus give us a new one? And the answer to that is plain. The old covenant that God made with Moses had faults. Now give me time to explain that. The covenant had faults. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 is a, is a chapter in the New Testament that goes into depth about this new covenant and points back to Jeremiah 31. And we're going to see a large portion of Scripture in Jeremiah 31 repeated in Hebrews chapter 8. In fact, it's the largest Old Testament quote that is preserved in the New Testament. And it has to do with this new covenant. Hebrews 8, 6 through 7 sets up that quotation. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. 
since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What is he saying here? He's saying that the first covenant, the covenant with Moses in the wilderness, the covenant of the law, had faults. Jeremiah 31 describes those faults. It says that this covenant was a breakable covenant and man broke it. See, a covenant is, is a contractual promise between two or more parties. And in the scripture, covenants are very important because it is the way that God promises to interact with his people. God had made this covenant with Moses on Sinai, but it was a particular type of covenant. It was a conditional covenant. That means there are terms of the covenant that must be held by party one, and there are terms of the covenant that must be upheld by party two. If either one of those parties fails their part, then the covenant can be nullified. The agreements of the covenant no longer stand if covenant party one doesn't do their part, or if covenant party two fails their promises, the covenant can be broken. And that's exactly what the Jews did over and over again. Though they desired to be near to the Lord, they constantly proved their shortcomings by breaking the covenant that they had made in the Sinai wilderness. They could not keep it. They could not fulfill their part of the covenant. The old covenant was conditional. The old covenant could not save either. If the old covenant had been enough, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to come and give his life on the cross, would there? We would have just needed to be better at sacrificing our animals and staying on top of our religion. But that's, that's not what the old covenant was actually meant to design, uh, designed to give. The old covenant fell short of what we really need as a people. Listen to Exodus 19.5. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Do you see the operative word there? Listen again. Now therefore, if, that's a conditional covenant, if you do you, your part, if you fulfill this law, if you don't break my precepts and my commandments, then you will be my special people. There is the weakness of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Now, let me clarify something for you. The Old Covenant wasn't flawed because God made a mistake. It was insufficiently, or it was insufficient by design because God desired to show us that any hope of salvation that rests in part or in whole upon the shoulders of man, upon our own ability to obey, is a hope that is destined to fail. God built that into the Old Covenant for a reason. The law was there to teach us, to tutor us. It proved to us that we cannot redeem ourselves, no matter how hard we may try. It said, here are the terms. If you can meet those terms, perhaps you can be saved. And time and time again, man proved that there is no way for us to save ourselves. But friends, the old covenant was not a waste. It was not a mistake on God's behalf. It was not perfect. The covenant that was given was not perfect, but it was not a waste. It fulfilled its design. I have seen time and time again that a man will not be willing to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior until he sees how desperately he needs to be saved. If we don't preach sin and tell people the weight of their sin, why do they need a Savior? They won't see it. They won't understand their deep need for regeneration because they think they're alive and well. And then they'll take on some 
halfway Jesus that might just be a blessing to their life and might give them a little more wisdom, but they're not looking for a Savior to be Lord and Master of their life because they don't see their ineptitude. They don't understand that they cannot save themselves. And so the Old Testament law was so very important because it taught us, it trained us, it proved to us that we can't keep the terms of the covenant. If we were going to be saved, that salvation needed to come from something outside of ourselves. It needed to come from one who could keep a covenant. And so the new covenant that we have today was established by Jesus on Jesus' terms and is dependent solely on the work of Jesus. It is a unilateral covenant. I am promising to do this for you and you're simply going to receive the blessing of it. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament prophecy should not have been totally surprised by this because Jeremiah 31, hundreds of years before Christ, had predicted that this would happen. And so if you want to open to Jeremiah 31, you can, or if you're already in Hebrews 8, you can follow along because these passages are going to be parallel in those two places. We're also going to include it on the screen for you. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, he's differentiating between the two, isn't he? Saying the old covenant was conditional and you broke your terms of the covenant. Marriage, by the way, he mentions here, he calls himself a husband as their God. Marriage is a covenant that God has given to us to teach us and to train us to respect the covenant that he has made with us. And we can follow in the footsteps of God's love when we love our spouse unconditionally and care for them the way that God cares for us sacrificially. But the greater covenant exists between man and God. And he's about to describe it, starting in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That prophecy of Jeremiah pointed forward to the new covenant we're talking about today. Now we've asked, why do we need a new covenant? And now let's ask the question, how is the new covenant better than the old? Jeremiah just described how. Let's, let's parse it out. First of all, the new covenant is superior to the old because it is written on the heart. It is not just a law kept in a book somewhere. It is not just inscribed on tablets of stone, but it is a law that now becomes a part of God's people, their very being. When God plucks you out of sinfulness and he redeems you, you become born again. A new life begins in you. Your dead soul comes to life and you begin to love things that you couldn't love before because you didn't have the Spirit of God with you. You begin to love the law of God. It becomes written on your heart you desire to do it. You desire to keep it. You desire to know more about it. This change cannot be brought about by human discipline. It must be brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. 
And so now this, this law, this goodness that God has shown in His Son, Jesus Christ, is written on the hearts of those who believe. It is not just some tablet that we go and read together somewhere. It is inside of who we are. Secondly, it is better than the Old Covenant because it results in greater fellowship with God. If you were to have gone into the temple in the time of Jesus, you could go into the Gentile courtyards. If you were Jewish, you could go farther into the inner temple court and the yards there. You could go into the temple itself, perhaps, but you could not venture past the heavy curtain that separated the temple off from that special place called the Holiest of Holies. You were not allowed to enter there. You were not righteous enough to be in what the Jews considered the very presence of God. But as we will read in just a few short weeks as we examine Jesus upon the cross, when he breathed his final breath and told us that it was finished, what happened in that temple? What happened in that holiest of holies? That great big curtain that said off limits was then torn in two in that moment by God's hands. And the separation that existed between God and man was rendered defeated and obsolete. Those who have Christ now do not need a priest to pray on their behalf. They can now go before the Lord themselves in prayer. They can seek Him. They can know Him. They can be near to Him in a way that they couldn't before. Now that Holy Spirit was the thing that saved an Old Testament believer as well. But the New Testament believer is filled with the Spirit and is able to benefit from the blessings of that Spirit dwelling within them richly and empowering them. Listen to Ephesians 3, verses 11 through 12. This was according to the eternal purposes that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. We don't have to cower anymore. We can come before the Lord God as His redeemed children because of this relationship that He has made with us. We can have true fellowship now because the new covenant is better than the old. The third reason why the old is not as good as the new, the new covenant results in a greater knowledge of God. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us that we just spoke of, it also opens our eyes. It helps us to understand the scripture that to, to so many people are a mystery, but the Holy Spirit helps us to see it for what it is. The gospel makes sense now to our eyes. We were blind, but now we see thanks to the Lord. And this knowledge of Him grows and increases regularly as we seek Him and as we interact with the church and as we become greater disciples by the power of His Word. There are so many things that we have today, so many truths that we have as the church that the Old Testament believer did not enjoy like we do. We have been given this greater knowledge because we are a part of a superior covenant. That doesn't mean that uh, teachers are totally obsolete. Notice in that covenant in, in Jeremiah and that prophecy in Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews 8, it says, No longer will they teach one another and teach their neighbor, he, he is the Lord, know Him, but they will know Him already. What that means is that you don't need me necessarily as your pastor to give you the Scripture because you've got the same thing I'm using to interpret the Word of God. You've got the Holy Spirit in you now. This new covenant has given it to you as a seal and a blessing. So you don't have to confess your sins to a priest. Jesus is your mediator now. He is the one that stands between you and the Lord God, our Father in heaven. He brings you together. And so you can learn the word just as well as I can teach it. It doesn't mean that pastors are unimportant. It doesn't mean that fathers shouldn't teach their children. But it means that those are a part, who are a part of his kingdom, who have given their lives to Christ, they now have a great desire for this knowledge. And he will put that, heart, that in their heart if they turn to him. Fourthly, 
This new covenant gives us forgiveness of sins. And it's not a temporary forgiveness. It's not forgiveness that only covers the things we did before we came to Christ. It is a forgiveness that covers every sin we will ever commit as his children. The blood of animals could never accomplish this, but the blood of the God-man can and does accomplish it for those who are in this new covenant. Hebrews 9, 15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, we are called together to live in the newness of this covenant that brings us such great life. When we raise this cup of communion up to our lips and drink of it, we are confessing that a better covenant has come. A covenant that has been written on our hearts. A covenant that is in so many ways better than the one that it replaces. And that covenant does not forget Israel. Because anyone in Israel who comes to Christ is a part of that covenant as well. We are a part of spiritual Israel through this practice of trusting in Jesus Christ. Now as we begin to think about these elements, we've talked a bit about the blood of Jesus being represented by the juice that we're going to partake of in a few minutes. How it represents the blood that Jesus shed for us. We also talked about how the bread is a picture, a symbol of the body that Jesus gave on the cross, that he was willing to come down and take on flesh and walk pure and free from sin and then gave that life intentionally and willfully on the cross to redeem us. I want to also mention that you don't have to be a member of this church to take of the Lord's Supper today, but it is very, very important that you are a member of God's eternal family. That means you don't have to be a member of this church, but you must have at some point in your life surrendered yourself to the Lord God, confessed your sins to Him, and received Him as your Lord and Savior. If that is the case, please partake of these elements with us today and be blessed as they give us grace. You also don't have to be a perfect son or daughter to partake of these elements. We come to this table because we need Jesus, not because we've gotten to the point where we don't need Him anymore. These elements remind us that we are daily trusting in Him to provide that which is lacking in us. Because He is the great keeper of covenants and He never breaks a promise, we lean on His power and strength every time we break our, our covenants, every time we break the law. He shows us that it's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon Him. Now if you are a professing believer today but you're not repentant of your sin, if you don't seek the Lord for your forgiveness, if you're not asking Him for help to overcome those things that have separated you from the Lord God, then please do not take of these elements today. Let them pass and just be an observer. If you are not a believer here today, then please just watch, observe, and see this beautiful act that we are doing here today which has been going on for 2,000 years in the church of Jesus Christ. In a second, we're going to take a moment because we take this seriously. We're going to take a moment to examine our hearts. We're going to ask the Lord in prayer to reveal anything in us that is wicked, that we need to confess to Him, that He can overcome, that He can have victory over, so that we might remember who we're trusting in for salvation. And we're just going to give you about 60 seconds to do that. I hope that when first Sundays come around, you anticipate that and you're spending even more time on your own doing that, because 60 seconds isn't a whole lot of time. But we want to give you at least a little moment to think on the Lord and to, to speak with Him and thank Him for this grace that He's given to you through the Lord's table and through His Son's sacrifice. So I will close this in prayer in about 60 seconds, and then we'll give you further instructions. Let's bow in prayer.